in my long career, I don't think I've ever actually had a sponsor. Uh, and sponsorship is, I think, so powerful. And I, I look to be a sponsor now in my career. I think that giving back is so important. I mean, for one of us to get through the door and not to bring others behind them is self-defeating and impedes progress, right? It impedes change. Welcome back to another episode of the Warner Brothers Discovery Empowered Women's Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Janelle Gardner, VP of Talent here at WBD. Today's topic is powerhouse products to powerhouse careers, aptly titled, given the guests that we have for you today. They have worked on some of our biggest brands from Max to Mortal Kombat, CNN to March Madness, and the list goes on. But what is truly special about today's episode is that you get a sneak peek into who they are as people, how they've navigated some of the more unique elements of their lives and their personalities to build what have been some some truly special and remarkable careers. So without further ado, guys, let's get into it. All right, let's start with introductions. Marcus, let's start with you. Hi, my name is Marcus Mabry. I'm the Senior Vice President uh, for Digital Editorial and Programming at CNN. We are the largest English language news platform in the world. Uh, I'm lucky enough to lead the team that puts all of our editorial content up on platforms around the world, CNN's platforms and social platforms, off platforms, everywhere you can see our content digitally. Before CNN, I was at Twitter. Before Twitter, I was at the New York Times. Before that, I was at Newsweek Magazine for uh, almost two decades. And during which time I was a foreign correspondent based in Paris and then Johannesburg, I covered Nelson Mandela when he was president uh, and also covered the State Department in Washington, was based in Atlanta, uh, so been around for a little bit. I made to move from traditional journalism to digital because digital was already clear to me. I was the future, and it's a way we connect content with audiences that are really passionate about it or who need that content. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Hi, my name is Sarah Michael. I am a product manager focused specifically on analytics and insights. My job is mainly to mine interesting data points for the various streaming apps that we have, such as Discovery Plus, HBO Max, and Max, so that we can better um, serve our viewers as it pertains to both content, but also from a feature standpoint. Um, in terms of my past, I've worked in tech and entertainment most of my career. I was at IBM in, early on, and then I went to uh, Nickelodeon, the kids' brand, and now I've been at um, WPD for the last two years, and I'm excited to be here. Hi, everybody. I'm Stephen Flannery. I am the Vice President of Platform Technology for WB Games. And I also oversee our New York uh, gaming studio here. So uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is a content creation company. We create and distribute movies and television shows, news and sports, and surprisingly games. Uh, most people are surprised to hear that, you know, coming out of Warner Brothers Discovery is games like Hogwarts Legacy and Mortal Kombat. So our games division, we have uh, 11 different studios, 10 of those studios spread out all over the world. They are responsible for telling these amazing stories and creating a lot of this really interesting content. My studio is Central Technology. So it's our job to solve sort of common problems across all of those studios. We do things like uh, help them bring their games online with multiplayer and social features and tournaments and login and stat tracking, all of these things to help us build a much more connected gaming experience. And, and we get the opportunity to help our studios focus on innovation. So. We solve the common tech problems while they focus on telling the best possible stories. I've been with my current team here for almost 16 years at this point. Our uh, company was acquired by WB back in 2016, but prior to that, we've sort of built up from a very small group focused on a, a very focused set of features and development across a small number of titles to now growing over the years and, and overseeing central tech for all of games. Prior to this, I was the uh, vice president over uh, technology for uh, Major League Gaming. Prior to that, I worked at 
UPS on the technology front uh, and in operations there. And uh, yeah, my career just sort of grown over time to land me where I'm here today. Um, I'm super happy to be here. Thank you, guys. Obviously, you can hear from those summaries. They've all managed to develop such impressive careers. And so we'd love for the audience to get to know a little bit more about the folks behind the resumes and the journeys that brought you here. So, Marcus, I'm going to start with you. As you said in your intro, you're the Senior Vice President of Digital Editorial and Programming for CNN, and you've done everything from being the first North American editor for Twitter Moments to covering Nelson Mandela's presidency, which you know, is so remarkable, but also a little bit intimidating. And one of the things I noticed when we had our initial conversation, and for those of us who know you, you are really easy to talk to and really relatable. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit with the audience about who the person is behind the resumes. What are some of those foundational moments in your early life that have been fundamental to who you've become and the path you've chosen? Uh, thank you so much for, for that question. It's great to hear that I, I am relatable. In, in my business as a journalist, um, I started off uh, as a, a writer at Newsweek Magazine doing business stories. Then I was a reporter in the field for a long time. I covered wars in Bosnia and in the Balkans and in South Sudan uh, and in Angola. Covered people dying of HIV, AIDS in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa when they didn't really even understand what that was they were suffering from. So you have to be able to talk to everybody as a journalist. I feel like my own background has been tremendously helpful in that. I'm a poor kid from Trenton, New Jersey, raised by a single mom who you know, benefited from amazing educational opportunities at a very fancy school called Lawrenceville, uh, boarding school in New Jersey near Princeton, and then at Stanford University. And all those opportunities and that background as not only a, a black man, but also someone from a poor background and also someone who is openly LGBTQ, I had no choice but to figure out how to operate in many different cultures and environments. And that I think has stood me in really great stead, not just for my work as a journalist, but also even in a tech space, maybe even especially in a tech space. When I was at Twitter, I was one of 2% African-Americans at Twitter, but our experiences and, and all those diversities you can bring to the table are so important in the tech space to understand what customers need, what needs are not being met. And then obviously also in a journalistic space where we're sitting around the table deciding what, what is news? There's myriad news events happening every single day. What are we gonna cover? What matters? It matters a lot, the perspective you bring to bear around the table. And so I think my background has been incredibly helpful to make me a better technologist and a better journalist. There's so much of what you've said that I want us to dive into, particularly about how you navigate using your voice when you are the only person at the table. I'll circle back to that. Um, I'll go through the other introductions, but, but very excited to talk about that. One of the cool things about this panel today, like I mentioned at the top of the session, is that it's such a diverse set of panelists in terms of your experience and certainly where you are in your career. Um, Sarah Michael, you are earlier in your career. You're currently product manager for Max, which I think was probably the biggest launch of 2023, certainly one of the more complex ones. And you, you shared with us at the top of the call a little bit about your background. In our conversation, you shared a particular story about your journey in getting here and creating your own path. And I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about that and, and kind of your journey in getting to, to where you are now. Absolutely. And certainly I'm not an SVP yet. I'm on my way, Marcus, but I'll get there, right? I'm still early in my career. But when I think about like my my journey, right, I look back and I, I see some general themes in my career. It's been mainly driven by patience, resilience, I would say, and also resourcefulness. 
And also this willingness, I would say to try the unknown. I think that's how I got there ultimately um, at the VVD. So I grew up in Haiti my whole life. I came to the U.S. for college and um, I was really privileged, right, to have been able to um, intern at Google because my brother at the time, he had an internship his sophomore year, so he was able to pass on my resume, right? So that's not lost on me that those opportunities are not given to a lot of people, right? When I was at Google, it opened a lot of doors for me, I would say, so to speak, as an intern. At the time, this was when I think the movie, the the internship had just came out and everybody was on Google and all of that culture, right? So since uh, interning at Google, I was able to work full-time for IBM, which is where I actually started my career. And at the time, specifically after I worked at Google, I knew that I wasn't too much of a fan of tech. I was more so trying to work in consumer packaged goods, which is basically like Pepsi or like Coca-Cola. And the reason being is that I knew those brands coming from Haiti, like these are international brands, right? There is really no rhyme or reason. It was just one of those reasons, right? So unfortunately, especially early in your career, you have to kind of like love the company that that loves you, choose the company that chooses you, right? Um, in a sense, I think that IBM was a company that adopted me and really formed me. So I stayed there for five years. Towards my fifth year, I knew that I wanted to be in entertainment and I thought I was ready to get there. So I was able to um, get some inter in in interviews, I would say, for like the big companies like the Netflix and the Hulus. And I would get to the final rounds of those interviews and I just would not get the offer. I mean, surely they must have liked me if I got all the way there. And one day there was this recruiter from Hulu, actually, who told me he was very candid. He said, you have the tech experience. You don't have entertainment experience. So that's why we can't hire you. And I'm like, I'm trying to get there. That's the whole point, right? So I think this was one of the first adult disappointment I've had in my life, being rejected, right? It had all um, been going all well for me with, uh, up until that point. When I spoke to my brother, who has been my mentor, I would say, he basically said, well, you should be able to do the research and get your own entertainment experience. And that was an interesting idea because since then, I had been able to be, be resourceful in the sense of like getting some um, research around Nielsen, for instance, sitting on earnings calls for big tech uh, entertainment companies, streaming services, for instance. I befriended the CEO of this company called Parrot Analytics, who was able to get me a seat in one of his, um, you know, softwares. And so I went, I started writing reports, pretty deep, uh, knowledgeable reports around the business of streaming service, the business of entertainment. And I started publishing them. And I was very consistent in the sense that I would write a report, let's say once a month. And then towards like the third year, is when actual journalists started to reach out to me, specifically entertainment journalists, because they were interested in um, getting some answers for questions such as, where are you seeing that Netflix is investing in terms of content genre? Where are we seeing that Amazon Prime might be investing next, right? So, so much of those data-driven answers they were looking for. And by a mere coincidence, I believe that there was someone high up at Nickelodeon was one of, I guess, my readers. And they reached out to me and they were able to give me a job at Nickelodeon. At the time, Nickelodeon is a broadcasting company, right? It's, it's a cable company. It's not streaming. But at the time, I said, what's the next best thing? It's not streaming, but... I'll get there. It's a stepping stone. So here I was, I was able to go on the corporate side, specifically working at Viacom under the Nickelodeon brand. And I had stayed there for two years. And then I started again after I, I realized, okay, now I have enough experience. I have both my side hustle, but also my corporate experience. Now it's time for me to try again. And that time around, I was able to get an offer here at, at the time it was more Warner Media, now WBD and also Roku. Um, so I say this because sometimes you have to often um, be really resilient, be really patient 
important and understanding that each point of your career has to be strategic and it could be used as a stepping stone for something better, something new. I love that story, Sarah Michael. And I think I wanted us to talk about that because often we hear from folks who are looking to transition in their career, who are maybe don't have the experience that you need. How can you kind of get there? And I love that you talked about resourcefulness. I love that you talked about mentorship. And I love that you took that opportunity that could have been a disappointment and really turned it into something special. And that's wherever part of your story. So I thought it was an important point for us to talk to the audience about. You also touched on a lot of things that I, I want to cover during the conversation, but I'm excited to get to Stephen and then circle back. Stephen, last but by no means least, you have one of the coolest jobs in the industry and you're definitely the envy of many people I know. Vice President of Platform Technology at WB Games and CEO Director for WB Games New York. Your team touches everything that comes out of the WB Games house. And obviously this year you have been home to some of the biggest gaming releases, Hogwarts Legacy, Mortal Kombat. And so I'm, I'm really excited to hear your story and your journey. So I would love to ask, what do we need to understand about your earliest years that will help to contextualize for us the person that you are today and, and the path you've chosen? Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about this conversation today because our, our journeys are so different. So you're going to hopefully get something out of each of our different paths. So for me, I, as a young kid, this is when my journey started. I grew up, I was a very sickly kid. I had lots of different illnesses and, you know, I just couldn't participate in sports. I couldn't really go outside and play very much. So I just spent a lot of time in the house and my dad saw that and he decided that, you know, he wanted to get me into certain things that can keep my mind busy since I can't do much with my body. So there's a couple of things that he got me into. First one was music. So, you know, drums and piano. So I'm a musician. But the second and, and one of the more critical things he got me into was computers. He went out and he spent money that I know we didn't have, <laughs> but he went out and he bought us uh, our first computer at the house. And I remember just unpacking that computer and just like figuring my way around it, right? And just, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing back then, so I couldn't very quickly go and just Google how to use this, right? I had to like find my way. I had to learn how the computer works. It was an Apple IIe. And over time, I discovered that I can play games on this computer, right? And outside of all the different functions I can do, I can go download these. A lot of times it was mostly text-based games. Um, and then eventually the graphics came in, but I got, I got into gaming and I really enjoyed it. I love playing games. And my dad was both happy about that because I got something to keep my mind busy, but also he was like, all right, you, you can't just sit here and play games all day. And I realized we, you can't go you know, participate in sports or anything like that. So if you're going to be this into games, then you need to learn how to make them. Uh, and he went out and he bought me um, a book that came with a CD and it was how to make games. It was a, a game programming starter kit with Visual C++ uh, 3.0. And he wasn't a software engineer or a programmer or anything along those lines. So he basically handed me the materials and said, all right, like, I want you to sit and spend your time and figure this out. And I was so excited. I just remember the first time I was actually starting to write code. I made my very first very simple game. And man, I just got so excited about that. And that just resonated with me. So even as I grew up and I grew out of my different illnesses as a kid and I was able to start participating more in different sports and activities. I had this passion for technology, this passion for software engineering, and this passion for video games. So I, I again, at, the, at a young age, I sort of knew what industry I wanted to be in. I knew what direction I wanted to head to. So I just had to figure out how to get there. So you know, over time, my father, just he made sure that I was connected with people. He made sure I was networking with people who were into this kind of thing. I, I grew up in a, a low-income area, predominantly a black area, predominantly black school. And there were no resources available to me through those traditional means to learn how to do software engineering and programming. So 
my father was just instrumental in making sure I was connected and talking to the right people at the right time to get the right knowledge I need. And that's just, it's a tool that I've been using for years and years and years. So eventually I turned 16 years old and it is time for me to go out and get a job. So again, getting close to finishing high school and UPS was hiring package loaders. And there was a pathway through UPS where if you move into leadership there, they will pay for your college. So I said, okay, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to load boxes, which I did for two and a half years. And then I eventually, right in time, I got moved up to a part-time supervisor that paid for college. So, you know, I'm at UPS. I am getting this sort of management level experience, and I'm going to school for software engineering, kind of preparing myself for, you know, what's next. And um, what's interesting about my career is that there's like a series of decisions and forks in the road that I could have gone in either direction. And I've been fortunate and lucky and blessed enough that I think I made the right decisions and went down the right path. I got to a point, uh, you know, I'm seven and a half years in at UPS, and I am operations manager, right? So I am on this awesome career journey there and I could stay there and go really far and do really well, but that's not where my passion was. Um, I'm close to finishing up school and I said, all right, time to make that decision. So I decided to take the leap. I left my very comfortable, safe job at UPS. UPS is never, it's not going anywhere. I could have been there for years and years and years. Um, I decided to take the leap with the support of my uh, now wife, but fiance at the time. Uh, to join a game development team up here in, in uh, where I'm at in, in upstate New York. Uh, and, and keep in mind, leading into this, I've been making games on the side the whole time. So I'm working at UPS. I was running my own game development company on the side where I worked at night to make products with other game developers in Cleveland so we can get things out the door. The game industry is very results-driven. So if you aren't showing that you can do the job, it's very, very hard to get your foot in the door if you don't know anybody. And I didn't know anybody. So, you know, I, I eventually took that leap and I joined a, a company called Agora Games. I was employee number seven. I told my wife, we're going to move here to upstate New York and we're going to be here a couple of years and then we're going to LA. I'm going to go work for one of the larger game studios that have thousands of employees working on the biggest titles in the world. That was that was the plan. And, you know, after a couple of years here, the leader of the company, who was very instrumental in my development and my growth, he decided he wanted to leave the game industry. And he said he wanted me to step up and lead and run this business, which was an incredible opportunity. It was something that I didn't think I was ready for, but it's something that he saw in me. So um, took this team on, again, very small group. And we like reset the business and we said, all right, like we know what we're all really good at. We know the problems in the industry. How are we going to attack this problem? and build an interesting product that's going to resonate. And we built this product called Hydra. It is what powers all of our games, even still today. It is this online service platform. And so we're going to build this product and we're going to build something that all the other game developers want to use. And fortunately, over time, that product really took off. We started working with all of the major publishers in the game industry. And we were working with WB for a while on a number of their titles. And um, Warner Brothers approached us and said, you all have been doing a phenomenal job. You've done nothing but deliver. We are trying to take our business and grow in this area and this connected and online space. This is what you all do best. I think we can all do this better together. So they acquired us in 2016. Um, and we started, we were just powering a couple of games at the time, but we've been fortunate enough to work with great partners, make really good decisions. Eventually we spread out, we're working on every single game that comes out of WB Games, our team is a part of. So it's just, it's an honor. It's, it's a, it, again, it's, it's a blessing. We made the right decisions, made the right calls. And now I'm overseeing central technology for 
the entire games division and helping us shape the strategy of the company and where we move this business forward. So that's a little bit about my journey. What an amazing story, Stephen. I think it, it's so interesting how the thing that started off as your pain became your gift and yeah. it like was the launch pad for your journey. And I think a couple of all of you actually mentioned a few themes that I want to dive into. One of those themes being sponsorship. You all seem to have some kind of mentor or sponsor along your journey. Stephen, that was your dad. Shout out to your dad. Sarah Michael, that was your brother. And so I, I would love to talk about how that shows up in the way you lead today. Stephen, since I'm still looking at you, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Honestly, I would not be where I'm at if it wasn't for some very key people who made the decision to invest in me when they didn't have to. My father was that first investment for me. He got me going, and then he took me as far as he could take me. When I started working at Agora Games, my uh, leader at the time, Mike Dopretti, he was, again, uh, very instrumental in shaping me and refining me and helping me understand the game industry, the space I wasn't familiar with. If uh, I rewind a little bit, back in, I remember I went to, in 2003 is when I went to my first game developers conference. And, you know, I'm again, I'm from predominantly Black school, Black neighborhood. It's all I've ever been around my entire life. Then I fly out to this game developers conference and I walk in a room with seas of thousands of people and I am the only black person there. And I was like, okay, this is a, this is a wake up call for me. So it's funny, even in that moment, there were people in that conference who saw what I was trying to do and pulled me in and gave me advice and, and took me under their wing. One person in particular actually really helped to ground me and help me understand like, this is what you need to do in the game industry to be successful. This is what I think you're really good at. This is what I think you might not be the best at. And this is where you should invest. And some of that, that, that advice and those decisions really pushed me down the path I'm on right now. Um, I thought I was going to be one of those game designers that's going to go out and, and, and write all these cool stories. But this person said, you're not very good at that, but you're great at engineering. You're great at leadership. So I think that's where you should lean into. And if he, if he didn't have that conversation with me, this very high up person uh, at, a, at a, another organization, if he didn't take that time out with me, I wouldn't be doing what I am right now. My next leader, Mike Dopretti, uh, who guided me through that sort of small business atmosphere, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. And even um, within Warner Brothers right now, I have a, a number of leaders who have taken their time out and invested in me. So that mentorship, uh, it has been critical to my growth and my success and critical to me making those right decisions whenever I hit those forks in the road. Fantastic. Thank you. Marcus, I'm going to go to you next. Can you talk a little bit about the role that mentorship or sponsorship has played in your career and, and how does it show up in the way you lead today? So I, I think I want to make sure folks who don't have a sponsor or mentor aren't discouraged because in my long career, I don't think I've ever actually had a sponsor. Uh, and sponsorship is, I think, so powerful. And I, I look to be a sponsor now in my career. I think that giving back is so important. I mean, for one of us to get through the door and not to bring others behind them is self-defeating and doesn't, you know, and impedes progress, right? It impedes change. So when I'm sitting around the tables I sit at, like the CNN editorial table, when we're talking about, well, what is a story today? And what are the important angles and framing on a story? It's important that, I, that I'm there and I'm representing everything that comes with me because otherwise someone else could be in that seat who was not a diverse person. And I think it's important that we make the most of being privileged enough to be in these places, right? And bringing on the next generation is a huge part of that. But if you don't have a sponsor, don't be discouraged because I, I never had a sponsor. I did have you know, mentors through the years who recognized my talent. And those people are really important. But don't be discouraged if you're not in a place where that's immediately recognizable. I love Sarah Michael talking about patience, resilience, resourcefulness. 
So go out and find someone who will recognize your talent if you're not around that right now, because there are those out there. Just you have to look for them and you have to demonstrate that talent every day. You have to keep getting up every day and coming back and being excellent uh, and, and doing that in the place where you are and looking at other places where you can get to demonstrate that excellence. So, so don't, don't, don't be discouraged. But the mentors who impacted my career are such a diverse group, and I'm really thankful for them. And we should all look to be those kind of sponsors or mentors, right? For people who look like us or people who don't look anything like us, who are just talented. And so for me, it was Mark Whitaker early on in my time at Newsweek. Uh, and Mark was the first uh, African-American editor of a national news publication anywhere in the United States in more than 200 years of American history. And he was ended up being editor of Newsweek. Then it was Mitra Kalita here at CNN. And Mitra is a South Asian woman who is a huge, uh, passionate uh, DEI advocate. And it's always about excellence and diversity going hand in hand and no contradiction there. Uh, and then Jeff Zucker. And Jeff, you know, very famous in the media world, old white guy from, you know, Florida, uh, but, you know, <laughs> was instrumental in, in, in recognizing my excellence here. And so I think that both reliance on self, and it can sound contradictory, but I don't think it should be. The reliance on self and the hunt for those who can help bring you along are really, really important elements to keep in mind as you move through your career. Like you said, those things aren't contradictory, reliance on self and others. What does it look like in terms of preparing yourself for those opportunities when they come, putting yourself out there, making yourself visible to those who have that influence and can mentor or sponsor you? What are some of the things you think our audience might be able to lean into? I think lean, in, lean into being open and learning, right? And so I was a traditional journalist when I was hired by the New York Times, and I spent eight years at the Times after 20 years at Newsweek. I was hired to be the international business editor. So I was in charge of the New York Times as reporters around the world who did economics and business. I made the switch to digital after all that time of being a traditional journalist. And, and everyone was like, well, wait, wait, how did you find out about this? What do you mean digital? What is that? And then when I left the New York Times to go to Twitter, people were like, well, what's this Twitter thing? Why would you leave the, the New York Times to go to Twitter? And because I was always searching for that compelling thing, that compelling thing that brought me closer to the audience. And that's what, in tech, that's what we get to do. We get to be close to the audience. The audience is our customer. That's what we're caring about. And in traditional journalism, and I, I love being a journalist, you know, you're often who, why, what, when, where, how. And you're telling a story that you think is very important and your editor thinks is very important. In the old days, that, that was enough. You told that story. Well, now we know, is that story connecting with anyone? We now have the technology to know, is anyone reading, watching, listening to the story? Are they sharing the story? So we can measure how is it connecting with people? And that's a whole different aspect of journalism. And I was hungry for that. I went out of my way to learn. And there's a lot of people in the chat talking about different certifications and different learnings. Go out there, be hungry for it, and learn it. Though this is not within my job description right now. That doesn't matter. Let your curiosity lead you. And I think that sets an amazing example, and it talks about your energy and your resourcefulness and your desire, your ambition to keep growing and learning. And I think that's the kind of person everyone wants on their team, whatever they're doing. I love that. Sarah, Michael, I want to give you the opportunity to weigh in here. What are your thoughts or experiences from a mentoring perspective? So for me, I, I personally think that both coaching and mentoring has really changed uh, my life. And it's been the most defining moments for me from both a economical standpoint, but also, a, I would say, um, social standpoint, right? I have been really lucky that when I was in college, I was able to participate in two programs, one called Management Leadership for Tomorrow, MLC for short, and another one called Sponsor for Educational Opportunities. 
short for SEO. And those two programs are basically built with the lens of helping minority um, talent to get into the corporate world and to um, give them an opportunity to mine that, that, that equity gap, right? And as such, you get assigned mentors, you get assigned coaches that are able to, at every step of the way, help you with the interview process, mock interview you, give you assignments, pressure test your, your flaws, but also your, your qualities, right, to, to empower you, but also to be your coaches. What this has um, done for me is it made me realize the gift that is mentorship as it pertains to the time, because it takes a, a tremendous amount of time and resource to fully um, mentor someone. You could have a coffee chat with someone. That's not mentoring, right? Mentoring requires a deep investment in someone's success, but you also have to provide the tools for that, right? So having done those programs and having, you know, and, and those programs cost money, right? And having the ability to now myself um, with that toolkit that I was able to get from those programs to help other people. That has been one of the most reward, rewarding things in my life. And something that I, I, I truly believe in is this idea that we're not doing it for us. We're doing it for people who come after us. I truly believe in that because the people that mentored me didn't have to do it. And I'm here um, because of those folks. And I, I, I try my best. And I think there's a couple of people that I believe in the chat that I've personally mentored that I told to come here. Right. And I would hope that they do the same for the next generation. Right. And I'll say one thing as it pertains to mentorship, because um, I don't have a sponsor yet. So I'm very happy that you brought up the fact more that it's okay not to have a sponsor i'm still on the lookout <laughs> so i'll tell you i'll tell that much by the end of the year if i if i if i'm able to but as it pertains to mentorship another thing that i have noticed is that a mentor can have different skill set you can have a mentor for your early career you could have a mentor specifically focused on career and um, campus recruitment for instance you could have a mentor that's able to help you navigate interpersonal conflict so um, I think oftentimes, or maybe it's me, um, I thought that you would have a one single person that would be that and all be all, that you would come and ask all the questions at one person. And what I have found is that you can find mentorship in different types of people, and they can bring you a different perspective and expertise, so to speak, as it pertains to um, what you need in, in, in life. Stephen has mentioned that he had one specific mentor that helped them with the gaming and the more expert side of the, the technical side of, of gaming, right? But you might also have someone that only helps you with um, how to manage your boss right or how to how to ask for that promotion right so as it pertains to that i want to pressure test the the, the people on the chat to tell them that it's okay if you have many mentors and it's okay to seek different ones thank you sarah uh, i love that i love everything you said there so many um really valuable nuggets i want to talk a little bit about i think each of you has individually mentioned being you know one of few in the room that look sound have the experiences you do and so i want to talk a little bit about that how do you internalize that and how does that affect the way you show up and what that means to you in your role can you talk a little bit about that sarah michael absolutely um it depends on the company that i've been obviously when i was at ibm ibm is one of those companies that is known for being very old <laughs> Um, so certainly a very conservative, traditional, right? A lot of old, white, tall men, a lot of tall people at IBM, weirdly enough, right? It also, it was at the beginning of my career where I was still trying to conform. I was trying to, in a sense, know my own corporate personality, so to speak. So I think that early in my career, I I, I may have had more challenges as, as it pertains to being myself, or I was a, perhaps a little bit more reserved or political, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right? But as it pertains to now, I, I, I'm very grateful that it's a combination of both. Now I, I'm, I'm older, I have more years of experience, but I also work in a company that values those traits, right? I 
think WBD being in the entertainment space, but also as Marcus mentioned in the news space, right? Just by the nature of our job, you have to be able to be open to many types of personalities, many types of, uh, let's say, race or ethnicities or, or, or gender, so to speak, right? So it has been more comfortable now. Um, now, with that being said, I think that being in, in, in a group, and if you're fortunate, fortunate enough to be in a group that you have um, people that are open um, and people that are diverse, certainly help, right? So thankfully, in my team, even though it is um, the overall org might be, um, might have a lot to do in terms of diversity and inclusion, but my team does a good job at that. And as such, I was able to um, be open and be myself. So uh, to answer your, your question, Daniel, I think it depends on the time of your career that you are and also the, the environment that or the corporate culture of, of, of the company, so to speak. So, so yeah. Thank you for that. I think you touched on so many things and you, you touched on something that is, is really important. And I think the conversation of authenticity comes up a lot. And I find that it's not that folks aren't trying to be authentic. It is exactly what you said. You are trying to advance in your career. You're trying to figure out where you fit in. And like you said, it comes with experience and it comes with time to realize that actually like trying to morph into something else that is not you, is not serving you or the organization you're sitting with, but that takes time and experience. And so I, I want to talk to the other panelists about finding that balance of feeling privileged that you are in fact in that room when you know you are one of very few, but then also leaning into your voice and, and representing yourself. So Stephen, I, I want to bat that question to you to get your perspective on that. So I, I agree with everything Sarah Michael said. It's this confidence that comes out when you're being yourself. Your initial question of like, how is that impacting me being the only person in the room? You know, now that I know I can I can be myself, it's okay to be myself. Um, but I know I work in an organization where it's okay to come out and just be Steve, be who I am. I'm a better employee. I'm a better leader. I'm a better presenter. I'm a, a better engineer. You know, when I when I know I can show up and truly be myself, right? So back when I first started in sort of sales and the game industry and sort of like pushing our product, some of the things that comes that I I just remember is. I have two other uh, folks who will go into these sales visits with me, and they're both white. And when we would walk into the room before somebody has met me or seen my face, they would not assume that I was the person in charge, right? So they would go look at Steve, Steve, and then they get to me like, oh, you're Steve, right? So I'll never forget those moments. And I actually, I remember like, I used to just, I used to make sure I dressed really well, right? To make sure that, you know, they would know, hey, I'm, I'm the guy in charge, Right. And it's sad that that's how that was, but that that's how I felt. And that's some of my experience. And over the years, as again, as I've grown in my career and grown in my confidence and just lean more and just showing up and being myself at work and building a culture and being a part of a culture, that's okay. That carries significantly less weight. I'm, I'm very comfortable being in any room in any setting. But on the other side of that, when I show up into a room where there's cause our, the game industry has changed, like some of the, the sort of entry level mid-level ranks, the percentages and diversity and in in representation from different genders and races, it has definitely improved to some extent. A lot of work left, but still improved. But now at my current level as, a, as an executive, a senior leader, and I show up in those same conversations, now that it's actually sobering for me. I'm like, wow, you know, even back in 2003, when I went to my first conference, we are 20 years later, and this room is still predominantly white male. So in those moments, it actually becomes a little bit sobering for me, just reminding me that, Steve, you're doing really well. <laughs> you're, you know, great for you, but we all have a lot of work to do, right? Because what we do in, in WB Discovery across all of our businesses is we deliver content, and we have to speak to audiences from 
all backgrounds and all walks of life. And if we don't do that, we're going to get left in the dust. So for us, it's not just a thing that we can say and preach. It is mission critical for us to make sure that those boardrooms and those leadership meetings and those senior executive meetings start to look more and more diverse year over year. So that's how that kind of impacts me now. And that's some of my feelings when I go into those rooms now versus, you know, back earlier in my career. I love that. I love what you said about it being mission critical, because sometimes I think it's it's taken a little bit for granted. And sometimes it can be seen as CSR, like we're doing this because it's a good thing to yeah. do or it's the right thing to do. And actually like the economics stack up, it makes sense because you can't connect to audiences, like you said, in what we do, unless you understand who's behind the camera. Marcus, I, I want to talk about this from your perspective. Obviously, you're sitting in a very unique part of the business. And so I, I want to understand how you kind of or have throughout your career balanced your voice with being unique in that space. I love that question. I love the answer Stephen gave before about the fact that diversity is not altruism. It is the right thing to do, but it's also the necessary thing to do, the mission critical thing to do, as you said, for our business success. We will not succeed as businesses if we do not do this. There's often talk about the audience for news being challenged across different platforms uh, and formats. And part of that, you know, lots of newspapers have shut down in America, but America has become an increasingly diverse society. So part of that is that people turn away if they don't see themselves reflected. Why, why would I buy a newspaper if nothing about me or my life or those I care about is present in its coverage? And so it is mission critical work. I think it's really important and it's easier once you're a leader, I think, to be able to say, well, look, look at the business, look at the metrics. So we know the diversity actually gets us larger audiences and makes us more revenue. You can see it in the numbers. It's, it's manifest. So that's fantastic. Before that, you don't necessarily have access to that kind of data. You may, you may be able to look around in open source materials and just do a little research and bring it to the table. And as a younger person, your bosses will be even more impressed when you do that. When you say, oh, well, actually, I've looked at these reports. Here's it, you know, cite, cite the evidence and say, I know diversity equals uh, the right business mission for us. That's going to impress any boss in any business. But also, you know, as you asked, how do we balance this based on where we are in our career, where it's sitting around the table? And Sarah Michael put it really nicely, I think. And you have to give yourself this grace at different parts of your career you have a different ability to, to be open and authentic. You're, you always seek to be authentically you. That doesn't mean you can always do it necessarily 100% of the time and 100% of you and 100% of spaces you're in. So give yourself the grace of knowing when you can and when you can't. Even, even in myself, my current position, but all through my career, as a journalist, you have to balance out, well, what's, what, what's the feeling in the room? What, what, what is our thinking? When do I have to introduce a thought or a contribution by saying, I know this may not be a popular opinion. However, I think it's important that we bring in this diverse point of view. When do you have to introduce it that way? When can you just, when are you in the middle of a, of, of a rough and tumble discussion about hard topics and everyone's introducing challenging positions and you just can toss yours out there too. So you have to gauge that. And it is true that uh, those who are from marginalized groups, anyone who's, you know, it can also apply, uh, not just people of color, of any color, can apply to women, it can apply to LGBTQ people, can be applied to people from different uh, physical abilities. All of us, at some point, probably fall into a marginal category and in some place, in some space. And so for all of us, we have to do this balancing of when can I bring all of my full self to bear? And when do I have to modulate that? And it's not easy. And it's not, you know, it's not something I like saying to my 13-year-old twins, 
And also my 13 year old twins may reject it and say, well, nope, not gonna do it. Nope, dumping myself all the time, hundreds of time everywhere. I refuse to go by your rules. And they've said that. <laughs> I can't wait till they're in the workplace and see how that works. So I do think there's generational differences happening, impacting us and frankly, making us better across industries and across companies. And so I also love that generational demand to say, no, 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 I'm gonna bring more of my authentic self at all times. So I love this give and take, and we, we, we feel it, I think, in, you know, in, in our workplaces all the time. And it is, it's how we get better. I love everything you've said. And I, I love that you talk about like the generational differences in, in how you approach it. I think now me as a mother, I think the way I think about things has definitely shifted in terms of how I want my son to be able to show up less filtered and having less of the weight on his shoulders. And so it, it definitely impacts the way I parent. Guys, we could continue with this conversation for much longer. I'm conscious of time. I did want to ask each of you though, before we open the Q&A, what is one piece of advice that has served you well throughout your career? And or what is one thing you would love for the audience listening to take away from this conversation? Marcus, I'm, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say, don't be discouraged. Don't ever think that a, a non-optimal situation, let's say, or a bad situation that you might be in at any point, don't ever think that that's going to last forever. Always remember there's a way out. There's a way you can bring your forcefulness, your persistence, uh, your creativity to bear. So don't ever let yourself be discouraged because that can happen. And we've all gone through dark passages of our careers. Sarah Michael. I think I would say um, always um, assume people's best intentions. Um, and this is more so if you are actually, you got the job and you're, you're in, you know, in a workplace. Oftentimes I notice that there's a lot of conflicts that could have been easily um, smashed if only the parties would assume people's best intentions. We are in a team, we are in a company, we have one goal ultimately, right? It's to bring value to our customers. And more often than not, I think that we should lead with empathy. So that's what I would say. Thank you, Sarah Michael. Steven. So as I mentioned throughout my pathway, I had lots of different uh, mentors and, and guidance along the way. One consistent theme throughout that from my childhood all the way up until now is you're going to be as good and amazing as the people you surround yourself with. Um, that applied to me as a kid. My dad telling me, make sure you're hanging out with the right people. So you you know where you're going in life, make sure they're going in the same place. When I you know joined into the game industry, my leader said, hey, if you want to be able to run this business, we need to start getting you around other people who are in the same spot as you or past you. And then when I moved into the executive world, my, my leader here, the president of our, our division said, all right, you're an executive now. We need to get you around other leaders and other executives in the company, outside the company, so that we can have you develop and grow. So surrounding yourself with the best people is, is always been a, a constant theme throughout my entire career. Fantastic, thank you. And that ties nicely into something that Marcus, you said, not being discouraged if you don't have a mentor or a sponsor. The other thing you can do is make sure that those you surround yourself with, you're able to learn from and you can pour into them, they can pour into you. We have a lot of questions in our Q&A, so I'm going to jump into some of those. Stephen, this one is for you. You were at UPS for seven years before you took the leap. What gave you the patience to stay at UPS for that long time, knowing what you wanted to pursue? They paid for college. <laughs> you know, full, full disclosure, right? So keep in mind, it was a it was a great company, lots of great benefits, and they were, they were a means to an end, right? So I had that end goal in mind. My end goal was not to be happy at UPS forever. My goal was to get into the game industry and become a, a professional software engineer and go make games professionally. So I look at everything as like, this is what I know I need to do now. 
and I have a clear vision and direction on what I, the problem I'm trying to solve, what my goals are. And as long as I know what that sort of end goal is, and I can sort of see and understand and track my progress towards that goal, I found that for me, for my personality, I can push through just about anything. So setting that clear goal and then sitting down and saying, all right, is this, is this actually contributing to that goal? Am I getting closer? Is, you know, is that light at the end of the tunnel? Is it getting a little bit brighter? And if so, I can push myself through just about anything. It's a great question, by the way. Thank you. Small progress is progress. The next question is for all the panelists. It's coming from Ashritha. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name correctly. My question is, what's your learning style and how does learning contribute to your background? So it ties into one of the questions we always ask. What are you reading, watching, listening to? Sarah Michael, do you want to take that one? Yeah, of, of course. For me, in terms of my learning style, I think that I'm, I don't know if immersion is a learning style, but I, I certainly um, think that as I am um, trying to get into, let's say, the um, business of entertainment, for instance, I listen to a lot of podcasts, five or six, I would say, on a daily basis, just to learn what's happening around the industry. I also think that humility and curiosity is a, w one thing that, a skill that you need to be able to to have as you're, you're learning, right? So, for instance, having the self-awareness to know that, hey, maybe you don't know how to write SQL well. Like maybe you should get like, you know, a LinkedIn learning course, right? So, um, and, and giving yourself patience. So um, that's what I would say in terms of advice, but also in terms of my learning style. Marcus, we have a question for you. How do you know when you can be 100% yourself when you're in a room? What are some strategies, techniques that you use to determine that? That's a great question. I, I mean, for me, it really comes down to the place I'm in, the space I'm in. Uh, who else is there? What ground rules are set? And so it's not, you know, you could actually have the exact same people, leaders and staffers in a space, but if the ground rules are different, you can actually share more. Personally, I find that the more transparent and open we can be, the better for me and for my teams. Workplaces that are inclusive, that allow all voices to be heard and all different forms of communication to be engaged in. So whether it's, you know, something like this, it's live. Some people aren't comfortable contributing verbally. They'd rather have something in writing they can think about and cogitate on and then send later. Allow that opportunity too. And so I think setting those ground rules of openness are really key. If they're not set and you're in a place where you might be a little more buttoned up and, and everyone has to present the same way and come in the same way, even though we are diverse people, then you have to be, be a little more considerate uh, and a little more calculating, not in a bad sense, but in a, in a deliberate sense. Sometimes you can shoot from the hip and just say what you feel. Other times you can't put out a half-baked idea because the, the terms of the debate or discussion are such that you must come with a fully thought paragraph in your head. And so you can figure that out by listening in the situation you're in, listening to the context you're in. Uh, if it's a new context, the first time you may not want to contribute, you might want to just listen, or you want to contribute maybe a, a small thought. If it's a regular occurring context, over time, you should get to understand the rules of engagement and how much you can present. Can you shoot from the hip? Do you have to have a well-thought-out thesis and supporting evidence before you contribute? So arrive deliberately. Don't just say, oh, I'm going to see whatever happens. Try to know what you can about the spaces and meetings you'll be in, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or a group setting, and then try to show up deliberately in a way that you think is going to lead to your success. And sometimes you'll be wrong. So give yourself that credit. It's going to happen. Sometimes you'll get it wrong and that's okay. 
Can I add to that for like a quick second, if I may? I think in addition to listening, I think, and you've pointed out a little bit, um, Marcus, it's the idea of like researching your audience, like learning about your audience, but also researching. So for instance, if you know that you're going to be in a room, you're, you just started your, your, the company, right? And you you meet those VPs, those SVPs, and you don't know them. Well, ask around, ask people who have been working for them, ask their EA executive assistant, what is their working style? stalk them <laughs> go on linkedin go on facebook try to see like what is the type of people that they are get to know their views outside of work but also um try to maybe um, approach them even before you get to those meetings by the elevator like by the you know by, by by the um cafeteria just to gauge their level of directness their personality traits so i think that even before you get to that room you ought to you ought to, to yourself to um actually do a, a, a little bit of research on the, the people that you're going to be talking to fantastic and we have about a minute left. So, Stephen, I'm going to give you an opportunity to add to that question if you had a perspective on it. I, I, honestly, I thought that was well said by both of them. Um, Sarah Michael actually was mentioning something that I do often, even when I meet anybody. Again, it, technology has made things like this very easy. Understand this, even just going on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. right? And you know, I'm I know I'm going to meet this person. I'm going in for this interview. I'm going to be networking with this person. Going right on LinkedIn and sort of making those connections and and helping to inform yourself. So you're going into that room feeling educated. It, it sort of it for me it even raises my confidence, right? I feel like I know who I'm talking to. I feel like I I know what I'm talking about, right? So um, I thought that was that was great advice. Um, I would I would definitely second that. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. It's been such a great conversation. Um, I hope the audience has taken something valuable away from it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Okay, everyone, we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. If you did, please go ahead and rate and review, which will allow other women in our space to find this great content. And of course, like and subscribe. If you are interested in hearing more about careers at WBD, please check us out at careers.wbd.com. All right, see you next time.